Previously on Caustic Soda. Uh, again, it sounds like something from uh, the opioids. Car- uh, yeah, it's in they're, all hunting, Croft, they're all hunting for metabolite. <laughs> metabolite smash your brain with his psychoactive attack. <laughs> uh. <laughs> There's pus in them, our thighs. Fantastic. And now, the conclusion. I want to talk about trafficking. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Afghanistan before. Mm-hmm. The cultivation of opium in Afghanistan reached its peak in 1999 when 350 square miles or 910 square kilometers of poppies were sown. The following year, the Taliban banned poppy cultivation, a move which cut production by 94%. Well, that's almost 100%. They're good at that. So they're, mm-hmm. they're not all they're good at cutting that things. bad. Uh-huh. They're good at cutting a lot of things. Yeah. And poppy production was one of them. By 2001, only 30 square miles of land were in use for growing opium poppies. A year later, after coalition troops had removed the Taliban and installed an interim government, the land under cultivation leapt back to 285 square miles. Opium Mm. production in that country has increased rapidly since, reaching an all-time high in in 2006. Some 3.3 million Afghans are involved in producing opium. That's a lot of Afghans. That is a lot. Opium poppies are mostly grown in Afghanistan and Southeast Asia, especially in the region known as the Golden Triangle, Mm -hmm. Burma, Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Yunnan province, and China. Cultivation of opium poppies is on the rise in the Sinaloa region of Mexico and in Colombia. Mm -hmm. Conviction for trafficking heroin carries the death penalty in most Southeast Asian, East Asian, and Middle Eastern countries, among Mm -hmm. which Malaysia, Singapore, and Thailand are the most strict. Yeah, like you always hear about Saudi Arabia, somebody getting beheaded or stoned to death or something like that. Yeah. Most of it's for adultery, but some of it's for drug trafficking, probably. It's, it's really odd that it's the Middle Eastern countries are that strict because I hear stories from people who have worked in Saudi yeah. and gone to like huge like royal banquets and stuff. Yeah. And there's just like like bowls full of drugs there because they can't really drink. Right. And so right. a lot of them have the attitude, well, this isn't forbidden. Yeah, so because it wasn't like, invented until 1874. Like, Muhammad was long gone right, by then. Right. So they've got like hashish <laughs> and LSD, and I don't even know what he was saying they had, but it was just like insane how much non-alcohol they had there for, right, for right. having fun. I'm sure if Muhammad had stumbled across heroin, he'd be like, okay, I'm going to ease back on my <laughs> alcohol taboo, uh, but I'm going to put heroin right to the top uh, of the maybe. list. Maybe. Heroin trafficking was virtually eliminated in the U.S. during World War II because of temporary trade disruptions caused by the war. Oh, oh so here you go. DEA, start a third world war. Mm. War is... You want war on war. drugs. What is it good for? Stopping, Stopping heroin. Trafficking. <laughs> Say it again. Huh. <laughs> Japan's war with China had cut the normal distribution routes for heroin, and the war had generally disrupted the movement of opium. After World War II, the mafia took advantage of the weakness of the post-war Italian government and made Sicily a primary route that opium took westward into Europe and the United States. All right. Hey, you want to bring that that way? You got to come through here. That's so Sicily. (laughs) (laughs) In the late 1960s and early 1970s, the CIA supported anti-communist Chinese nationalists settled near the Sino-Burmese border, which helped the development of the Golden Triangle opium production region, Mm -hmm. which supplied about one third of the heroin consumed in the U.S. after the 1973 American withdrawal from Vietnam. So it's the CIA's fault. Uh, uh, The CIA has done a lot of questionable things, and not the least of which is supporting uh, regimes that made their money through drug trafficking. Mm. That is, that's not a crazy notion. It's happened in a lot of South American countries too. 
The Soviet-Afghan war led to an increased production in the Pakistani-Afghan border regions as U.S.-backed Mujahideen militants raised money for arms by selling opium. Yes, there you go. There's another one. They they, uh, they needed to buy guns, and so they, they needed opium to sell to get the money to buy guns. Yep. In March 2012, Haji Bagshow, with ties to the Taliban, was convicted by a U.S. district court for distribution of heroin for importation into the United States and narco-terrorism. Narco-terrorism? That's a thing? I think it's selling drugs to fund terror is what it is. Oh, okay. Yeah. As opposed to just like... Just make money. S- selling drugs, but like when you sell somebody drugs, you go, boo! <laughs> and they get terrified. Listen, this is America. We're Mm pro-capitalism. We're pro-making money, but we're not pro-making money and then giving it to terrorists. Maybe narco-terrorism would be like driving a van full of heroin up to a government building and just leaving it there. Oh. Narco-terrorism. Okay. As as opposed to like throwing it at the, like in people's faces. Yeah. Nothing explodes. Yeah. No. Except for drug use. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just stick a sign in it, free drugs. Yeah. And then that's the narco-terrorism. You get everybody hooked. I get it. Makes a lot of sense. Based on heroin production statistics compiled by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, in 2006, Bagcho's activities accounted for approximately 20% of the world's total production for that year. What? This, is, this is a dude? This, this is, is a one guy. guy. Haji Bagcho. Was responsible for 20% of the world of opium the, production? Yeah. He must have been worth a lot of money. I, I would guess. I would guess. Public, Public service announcement! announcement. I found an article written by a guy named J.F. Sargent entitled Five Unexpected Things I Learned from Being a Heroin Addict. Nice. I'm going to count this as a public service announcement because uh, he sort of talks about, you know, becoming an addict and what it Mm -hmm. meant. Uh, Number five. Number five. Addiction is an instant. Most people start heroin by popping and smoking. It never seems like a problem because you can use daily for weeks with no withdrawal effects whatsoever. I got totally wasted with my girlfriend Sally every night and woke up every morning clear as a bell. So it was super easy to think, hey, why not use again? No big deal. No big deal. One day I woke up with what felt like a flu and it wasn't until I got some more dope to help my flu that I realized I was junk sick. The term users have for the early stages of withdrawal. It was after that, after I was addicted, that I turned to the needle. Once you're at the stage where you're even considering the needle, you long ago forgot about squeamishness right along with work and everything else you ever wanted to accomplish in your life. (laughs) Sounds great. Number four. Number four. Movies get the scary parts wrong. Remember that scene in Requiem for a Dream when Jared Leto's arm gets infected and his friends act like it's the craziest thing he's ever seen? That scene is ridiculous because that shit happens all the time. When Sally got an abscess, we drained it with a hot compress and a disinfected razor blade, and that was it. It's so commonplace, it's practically boring. (laughs) A piddling little bit of blackened limb rot would be downright pleasant next to the looming threat of accidental overdose. One person can have dope that's 80% pure while his roommate can be getting high on stuff closer to 10%, and there's virtually no way of visually distinguishing between the two. Right. What happens over and over again is someone who used to get the lower end stuff gets some fire dope from his dealer. Oh, that's more potent. Yeah, mm. I think so. Even if he's careful and does a tiny shot to test it out, it could still end up being like four times his normal shots. Right. Some users have clarified that you don't die of an overdose of heroin. You die from heroin. Yeah. Right. Right. This sounds like uh, reasons why that Portugal idea, was it Portugal that uh, that legalized the drugs or decriminalized, decriminalized the, drugs, yeah. the drugs and then started just giving them out to addicts, right? Yeah. And that way you know you're getting 
exactly the right Ooh. dose, yep. right? Mm -hmm. So while we might think heroin's terrible, perhaps the right alternative is to just stop making it fucking illegal so that the people who have to have it are going to get stuff that's not going to so kill them. No, yeah. I, I want to I get it easily. Right, right, right. So you, you can Torin, do it five ways at once. Just me, the regular guy. Yeah. <laughs> Torin, you could get it easily. Oh, okay. Just go walk I downtown Vancouver and wait for that guy to go, H, H. H. You want some H? H? You want some H? Number three. Number three. On the subjects of heroin, getting clean, and my penis. <laughs> I like my where this is going. <laughs> okay. My addiction finally came to an end when I was arrested. Sally and I had been couch surfing as hidden homeless for months and shoplifting electronics to pay for food and drugs. We were finally busted while stealing dinner. So I went to jail and I discovered that a big part of heroin withdrawal involved my penis. Whoop. One of the key effects of heroin is dulling the senses. Smell okay. is gone, sounds get muffled, and since your body is numb, you lose the ability to orgasm. Then, in withdrawal, the exact opposite happened. I was sitting there in my jail cell in the throes of all the worst parts of heroin withdrawal when all my senses came flooding back and they brought with them a friend, a supernatural ability to orgasm at the slightest stimulation. Nice. Wake up, orgasm. Accidentally brush it with a scratchy jailhouse blanket. What a lovely <laughs> orgasm. Shake it off after you pee into an industrial toilet. Bam. Orgasm. Nice. This stopped being pleasurable pretty much instantly. Yeah. Sharing a living space with a guy named Tito the Butcher isn't the most erotic of all possible atmospheres, but that didn't matter. I could shoot off three in 30 seconds whether I wanted to or not, and the sensitivity stayed with me for weeks. So is <sighs> heroin withdrawal like the new Cialis? <laughs> Well, no, Cialis makes it so you can go for four hours. Oh. It's the opposite of heroin withdrawal. Yeah, Cialis is about uh, erection. Yeah. I'm guessing he's not walking around with an erection. He's, he, like, he just said he peed, right? Pee, shake, ugh. So he's having non-erect orgasms. Like almost comedic level orgasms. Yeah. Like well, this, this except that it's horrible, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So much for that argument we had earlier in the episode about whether or not this would be a good thing. Number two. Number two. Methadone can be worse than heroin. For the uninitiated, methadone is a cheap legal alternative to heroin that can be prescribed to help wean users off the drug. Okay. But trading a heroin addiction for a methadone addiction isn't exactly the Black Friday deal people make it out to be. Racist. Because, <laughs> because methadone is actually the more addictive substance. Oh. What? While heroin withdrawal by itself can't kill you and has physical withdrawal symptoms lasting anywhere from three days to a few weeks... Withdrawing from methadone absolutely can kill you yeah. and has symptoms that can last several months. Oh, yeah. wow. Another problem is that methadone clinics aren't exactly what you'd call strict. They let you choose how to taper off yourself, and they're happy to keep selling you the drug as long as you want. There's a reason recovering junkies refer to methadone users as lifers. Lifers. Mm. There are studies that have found that in terms of cost to society and overall lifespan of patients, a more effective strategy for getting clean is just slowly tapering off heroin. And to do that, you got to make sure that the amount you're injecting is properly measured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Number one. Number one. Withdrawal can last the rest of your life. <laughs> Heroin withdrawal lasts around three weeks at the most, and that's true, but you can still end up with paws. P-A-W-S. Oh, wow. oh, man. <laughs> furries are all going to start doing heroin now. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think paws stands for? Oh. Uh, it's an acronym. Per I'll get, that's, a clue. that's the clue. Permanent. Addiction, permanent addiction withdrawal syndrome. Wow. Well, the title of this is Withdrawal Can Last the Rest of Your Life. I'm going to go with Torn. Post-acute withdrawal oh. syndrome. Oh. The symptoms are similar to PTSD, depression, insomnia, restlessness, feelings of guilt and shame, inability to think clearly, and in my case, very vivid nightmares. 
<laughs> in one, I have a bag of dope in my hand. I'm looking for a place to shoot up, but every time I find one, I get interrupted. Oh, oh wow. Heroinists interrupt us. <laughs> the dream always ends when I have a needle in my arm. I'm just about to push off, and right before I can feel the effects, I wake up. Mm-hmm. Pause is like my addiction taunting me every night, and it can last anywhere from a year to several decades to forever. Oh, my God. Wow. Until but, you die. But if uh, I did until you die. That's, yeah. But even without pause, I know I'm never going back to the way I was before. I'm hooked forever. Even if I don't use for 20 years, one slip-up means I'll get withdrawal symptoms almost immediately. This is why you'll see recovering heroin addicts refuse pain medication at the hospital. They'd rather go through surgery without morphine than have to go back to that very first day they tried to kick. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that's the public service announcement, because that sounds particularly harrowing. Yeah. Heroining. Oh. In the news. In the recently former news, 2007, Dallas-Fort Worth. Cheese is a heroin-based recreational drug that has come to the attention of the authorities after a string of deaths among adolescents in Dallas-Fort Worth. Okay. Cheese is made by combining heroin with crushed tablets of over-the-counter cold medications, such as Tylenol PM. Such cold medications contain acetaminophen and the antihistamine diphenhydramine. The mixture is prepared by adding water to heroin, which is often called monkey juice. Because <laughs> it tastes like a monkey. Uh, uh, everybody know in Dallas-Fort Worth knows what monkey tastes like. Uh, and is then mixed with the crushed cold tablets. This mixture is heated to remove excess water, which results in the final product. Do you think there was some guy who was like, oh, man, I need some heroin. And I have a cold. Maybe. Let's just mix it together. Maybe. I. It was probably just, dude, we should totally try mixing with different things to see what happens. Like, yeah. Maybe. I just think it's an experiment Mm -hmm. that, I don't know, worked out. I'm waiting to hear what happens. Cheese samples obtained in North Dallas contain between 2% and 8% heroin in contrast to the 30% commonly found in black tar heroin. Users commonly take the powder by insufflation rather than by injection. Due to the high concentrations of non-opiate substances relative to the dimorphine content of the drug, abuse and overdose of cheese are more dangerous than pure form opiate overdoses. Huh. So it's actually cheese is more dangerous than actual heroin. All right, because it's just got a bunch of weird crap in it. Yeah, but because the weird crap that's in it causes its own problems. Emergency personnel must address the overdose effects of every component of the drug. The acetaminophen content induces severe irreversible damage to the liver when right. taken in high doses. Yeah, we've talked about very, that. Very high doses of acetaminophen are capable of producing acute liver failure and death within hours. <sighs> and patients who survive this acute phase of toxicity generally require dialysis and eventually a liver transplant. Yeah. I think, you know what it probably was? They were just looking for a new cutting agent. Yeah. And then they found out that you got kind of an extra high, an extra wacky high by cutting it with Tylenol PM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some drug dealer's like trying to cut his heroin and goes, oh shit, I didn't get, I didn't get any flour or whatever. I, I cut ran it. out of bacon powder. Yeah. I ran out of quinine. Right. Yep. So, but I what got else Tylenol I got PM. Around here? I got Tylenol PM. Throw that in the blender. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Create a whole new drug. Some police agencies dubbed the mixture starter heroin. The school district handled 54 possession cases and 24 felony offenses involving cheese between August 15, 2005 and March 1st, 2006. Not even a year. Uh, At 11 different schools. In 2007, the school district increased drug-sniffing dog patrols in an attempt to eliminate cheese. And by February 21st, 2007, usage of cheese was reported in the fourth grade level at several elementary schools. Yeah. And Dallas Police Narcotics Division noted 71 cheese-related arrests in children aged 10 through 16. Yeah, double digits. Where the fuck are their parents? Well, they did call it cheese, Joe. 
Oh, yeah, okay. It's just cheese. It, it's just cheese. Anyone can go out and get cheese. Yeah, that's right. Where you go? Where are you going, Johnny? Gonna get I'm some cheese. Get some cheese. Yeah. Oh. Right. But like in those those just slightly before preteen years, like you're probably still a totally like worried about your kid parent, right? You're mm-hmm. still like it's not it's really not a total human being yet, and I'm worried it's going to do something terrible to itself. So you're like totally overprotective. Your kid comes home either high or with withdrawal symptoms or something like that. You're gonna well, lose you your come mind. home overdosed. Yeah, and dead. Right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't have kids. Yeah. Right. Because you don't want them to get addicted to heroin. Mm. <laughs> October 2008, United Kingdom. Uh-huh. By the time Suleiman Airgun. Oh, he's got gun written in his name. Was 21 years old. Sounds he was, like a cool guy. He was the world's most prolific seller of smack. Oh. Known oh. as the North London Turk. Okay. Sounds like a, like a boxing moniker. Uh, in the red corner, the North London Turk. Weighing in at 145 pounds with a record of 39 million kilos moved. (laughs) Ergun and his gang flooded Britain and Europe with heroin for five years. At the height of his powers, he was a multi-millionaire. And his favorite drink was a bottle of champagne with eight grams of cocaine dumped into it. Oh, that sounds like a waste of cocaine. Today, he's 39, almost penniless, and lives with his mother. Here's excerpts from an interview. All right, okay. Oh, what does what uh, Suleiman Ergun sound like? Well, I don't know. It's North London. I do Ray Winstone. All right. Huh. At 17, I started selling Coke, eating pot, and I was earning 1,000 pounds a week. All right. That sounds pretty good. Then me, me brother-in-law, and an Istanbul godfather named the Vulcan. <laughs> it was Leonard Nimoy? Leonard Nimoy was involved? Founded a Turkish connection, a network that smuggled heroin from Afghanistan across Turkey into Europe. All right. Up until the early 90s, Turks had been bringing it in piecemeal. An immigrant would bring in 10 keys, sell it, buy a shop in Green Lane, and pack it in. We were the first to start bringing in 100 kilo loads. Oh, okay. A gear which- he, He's kind of, he's the, the, uh, the North London heroin Griselda Blanco. Mm. Mm-hmm. Huh? The gear was driven in from Istanbul to Paris in, say, a couch load of Turkish folk dancers. <laughs> <laughs> in say, like this is just one of the scenarios. Just for example, <laughs> Turkish folk dancers. Uh, did he keep it inside the dancers, or was it in the lorry? Yeah, so maybe. Yeah. Then I drive it up to Liverpool upon a f- up a few days later and come back with black bin bags full of cash. 140,000 pounds in one week, 100,000 pounds the next, 68,000 pounds the next, and so on, and so on, and so on. Then I count it, stack it, box it in cereal packets, and send it back to Turkey using a former Turkish army colonel disguised as a bone china collector as a courier. <laughs> After a while, we rolled out the same system across Europe, Spain, Italy, Holland, and Germany. At one point, we could afford to buy our own oil tanker. Oh, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money when you own oil tankers. Yeah. You're a conglomerate. They should have just started shipping oil. <laughs> oh, yeah. Then, get it, get then they'd good. be protected by governments yeah. instead of hunted down. Yeah. One of our workers was having an affair with a woman who was a police informant. He got nicked. Of course he did. And by that he means his name was Nick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gave him a nickname. Yeah, right. Nickname was Snitchy. But, right. <laughs> You got Nick Snitchy. <laughs> Customs put us under surveillance for a year. And then bingo, the old thing got warped in July 1993. A gang got 123 years between them. 
Oh, man, that's a lot of years. Started dealing in prison within two days. Oh, don't let prison walls stop you. Trading heroin and coke for phone cards, booze, tobacco. <laughs> I had five kilos of pure heroin straight from Turkey buried along with two Berettas, an Uzi, and four shotguns at St. Pancras Graveyard in North London. Why do you need to bury that many guns? <laughs> I don't think burying is good for Uzis. Every week, I'd phone up a girl. I used the word brandy, which was called, which was code for brown heroin, mm-hmm. and she would go and get it. She dug up a stash and shaved off some, and then it was given to a second girl who had a boyfriend in me prison. It was wrapped in a condom and nylon sheeting, shaped up proper like a dildo. Okay. She then stuck it up a cunt. <laughs> of course she did. On a visit, they'd struggle, they'd snuggle up close and struggle up close a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a bit of a struggle there. <laughs> and a boyfriend would put his hand slightly down in knickers, get it, and then stick it up his arse. How do you do that in the visiting room where you can get it out of her vagina and into your ass without a guard noticing? That is that is some manipulation. There's some that's a pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I no this lube. Guy, did he did he pre lube? Like I don't. This guy should, when he gets out of prison, become like the next David Copperfield. This guy's got a career <laughs> in stage magic for sure. Like the sleight of hand that this guy is capable of is something else entirely. I had the DST dedicated search team permanently on me case. They even used to take apart me batteries in the radio, but I never found gear in me cell because I used to hide it in me vegetable plot. <laughs> I hollowed out an onion, put a gear inside, and buried it. When the stock wilted, I just taped a fresh one on. This doesn't <laughs> sound like a terrible prison where you can finger bang girls and stick things up your butts while guards are watching, and, and you got vegetable plots that you can hide drugs in. Like, this isn't a half-bad prison. This guy had it pretty good for a, uh, you know, a convicted heroin trafficker. September 1995, I used heroin for the first time out of boredom and curiosity. It felt lovely and warm. <laughs> of course it did. Like somebody putting an electric blanket over you. <laughs> but the best thing about it, and this is why the jails are full of heroin, is that it makes time go by very quick. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. 20 hours on heroin is like two hours normal. I got out of 10 years later and didn't know I'd done the prison time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. You can't argue with that logic. And now you're on it. Because her pupils are like tiny pinholes and you start scratching and go red and raw. But they let it go. Because if you stop the heroin, it causes murders. (laughs) (laughs) And they can't handle that. Can't handle the murders. Drugs will never be stamped out in jail. (laughs) (laughs) This guy has a very distinct uh, point of view. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about it. I'm impressed with this uh, manual manipulation necessary to, like, mm. get the drugs from uh, from a coochie into a booty. You don't think they just scissored? Oh, you're allowed to scissor in the visitor <laughs> sure, room? Sure, maybe. Why not? This, okay, then then I'm even more impressed with their, like, not their manual manipulation, but their, like, the muscle control. Well, just the aiming. Yeah, like, the, like, like, she can shoot it and he can catch it. Like, that is way harder to hit than bullseye womp rats. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but it's got to be like a double-ended dildo like it's not like a dildo like a oh yeah i oh, guess yeah. it's vaguely it's like, shaped like a dildo it's not like a perfect silicon penis replica no with like no. a flat end it's, in the bottom it's cylindrical it's generally tube, speaking. Yeah. yeah but it's getting it from her to him that's the impressive part the uh the exchange 
took a monkey for a ride in the air. The monkey thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back. The monkey grabbed his neck and said, Now listen, Jack. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Coop down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Coop down, Papa, don't you blow your top. research pop culture for this there is a lot of pop culture about heroin so Mm -hmm. everybody out there if we don't mention your favorite whatever that is that it just post post on causticsodapodcast.com about how awesome it is and what the heroin is portrayed like in that movie and check out put it on our facebook page we can have like a whole conversation about it join the conversation at causticsodapodcast.com what's your favorite heroin based movie and or (laughs) tv show well i wanted to start with music or music. Yeah, because believe it or not, there are lots of musicians who have tried heroin. Huh. I don't know if you realize this or not. Really? Because they don't have real jobs. <clears throat> I want to talk about a guy named Gigi Allen. Is anybody aware of Gigi Allen? That sounds very familiar he, to me. Yeah, we've talked about him before. Yeah, there was a documentary called Hated, Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies. Oh, that's and right. He was in many bands, but the one that he was in uh, at the end of his life was Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies. He was uh, born Jesus Christ Allen. That was his name when he was born, because his father believed Jesus Christ had visited and told him that his son would be a Messiah. Hmm. Gigi's older brother, Merle, was unable to pronounce Jesus properly and called him Gigi. Merle. As a result, which led to his uh, his, his stage name later and on. And then Gigi got his revenge and called his uh, brother Merle Mimi. <laughs> If only that were true. The family lived in a log cabin with no running water or electricity. Their father was an abusive religious fanatic who regularly threatened his family with death, going so far as to dig graves for them in their cellar. Alan would later say he was glad to experience his upbringing because it made him a warrior soul at an early age. Okay. Uh, Gigi Allen is best remembered for his uh, notorious live performances, mm-hmm. which often featured transgressive acts like coprophagia, self-mutilation, and attacking audience members. His lyrics often covered subjects such as misogyny, pedophilia, blasphemy, and racism. And one of my favorite songs of his, the chorus is, I'm infected with AIDS. I fuck every day. 
I kill everything that I fuck. Right. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this in the music episode. It probably did. I think you're right. Yeah. Alan promised for several years that he would commit suicide on stage during one of his concerts. By the mid-1980s, Alan was addicted to heroin and alcohol and generally abused any intoxicants that were provided to him. Yeah. It's the not-give-a-fuck-itis. That's was, what that he is. He was definitely... Uh, hey, you want to do this? I don't fucking care. He sure. In fact, not, with not-give-a-fuck-itis, yep. for sure. Uh, Alan was fascinated with serial killers, and he visited John Wayne Gacy in prison a number of times. Gacy painted a portrait of Alan, which became the album cover art to the soundtrack of the film Hated, Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies. Right, yes, perfect. The documentary directed by Todd Phillips, who went on to direct Old School, Starsky and Hutch, and The Hangover. Uh, Gigi Allen's last show was on June 27, 1993, and is featured prominently in the documentary. During the second song at a gig, the power went out. Allen trashed the venue and walked into the street naked, covered in blood and feces, followed by a large group of fans. The documentary footage ends when Allen gets in a cab and drives off. Alan ended up in the apartment of John Handley, also known as Johnny Puke, where he and others continued to use drugs. At some point, Alan overdosed on heroin and slipped into an unconscious state. Those present posed for photos with the unconscious Alan around 2 a.m., not realizing that the musician was already in respiratory failure. Mm. The next morning, some noticed that Alan still lay motionless in the same place they had left him and called an ambulance. He's pronounced dead at the scene at 36 years old. Better to burn out than to fade away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A small selection of songs, th- ones that uh, many of our listeners heard of, may have heard of, that I personally heard of, uh, that uh, involved with heroin. Uh, heroin by The Velvet Underground. Huh. Perfect Day by Lou Reed was about heroin from the uh, Train Spotting soundtrack. Oh. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect day. I'm glad I spent it with you. He's talking about heroin. Hmm. Uh, uh, okay. Lust for Life by Iggy Pop. Lust yeah. for Life. Yep. Also on the Trainspotting soundtrack. I'm mm-hmm. starting to think all the songs on the Trainspotting soundtrack are about heroin. Possibly. The Needle in the Spoon by Leonard Skinnerd. She Talks to Angels by the Black Crows. Heroin Girl by Everclear. She's Like Heroin, System of a Down. Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. King Heroin by James Brown. <laughs> Hurt by Nine Inch Nails. Bad Fish by Sublime. Needle in the Hay by Elliot Smith. Needle in the Hay, which uh, was the song playing in uh, the Royal Tenenbaums while... Uh, Luke Wilson's character is committing suicide mm. or attempting suicide. Time to Pretend by MGMT, Brown Sugar and Dead Flowers, both by the Rolling Stones, Just One Fix by Ministry, Chinese Rocks by the Ramones, Mr. Brownstone by Guns N' Roses, Cold Turkey by John Lennon, Junkhead, Godsmack, Dirt, Hate to Feel an Angry Chair, all songs about heroin, all on the album Dirt by Allison Chains. We love that stuff. I think the uh, term dirt might have been talking about heroin. I think the entire album was a Could dirt be. theme album. Could be. Darkest Hillside Thickets do theme albums. Are they ever going to do a heroin one? We'll do Yes. Really? Emphatically, yes. <laughs> wow. We're going to change our tone from Lovecraft nerd band <laughs> to hardcore heroin addicts. Well, what, and, I mean, if we're talking about, uh, you know, your, your proclivities, what is your favorite film or television show that uh, features heroin? Oh, God. Neither of the ones that I watched this weekend. Oh, really? <laughs> what, what did you watch? I watched The Man with the Golden Arm. Oh, okay. So it's either about a pitcher or about a heroin addict who injects. It is not about a pitcher. Not about a baseball pitcher? I don't even like this title. Really? I thought it, it sounds kind of good. The Man with the Golden good. Arm? Yeah. The stars Frank Sinatra and Kim Novak. This is the story of a heroin addict who gets clean while in prison but struggles to stay that way in the outside world while trying to become a professional drummer. Kim Novak is attractive. Yep, and uh, avoid falling back into his old job as a dealer for illegal card games. Okay, all right. This is from 1955, but it was filmed in black and white. 
Right. Mm, so it didn't yeah. need to be filmed in black and white by any means. Well, there was more than one movie in that era that sure. was filmed in black and white. I, I think it was a stylistic choice, though. Right. Okay. All right. The Motion Picture Association of America refused to certify the film because it showed drug addiction. So this is this is a very like it came as close as you could possibly could to actually showing like Frank Sinatra injecting. Right. Without doing it. Yeah. Right, because they wanted to be shown in theaters, which yeah. the MPA wouldn't let them do. Yeah, well, it just it was released without the certification. Okay, um, it was a good movie. It was <laughs> definitely, you know, I appreciate what it was trying to do. I um, mean, in nineteen fifty-five, could you look? Could you like get back in your way back mental machine and think to yourself, in nineteen fifty-five, this would have been pretty groundbreaking? Certainly, yes. All right, absolutely, yes. Okay. The thing, the problems I had with it, with it was not is that you've seen Requiem for a Dream, yeah. and now it's like <laughs> it's kind of your sense has been dulled. The problems I had with it actually were not heroin related at all. Okay. All it, right. It used. It had this kind of bombastic jazz soundtrack mm-hmm. that was basically going on throughout almost the entire movie. Have you seen Birdman? Yes. Yeah, that's a bombastic jazz soundtrack. Yeah, Do you like that, that movie? That's fantastic, though. There was like, there was. it almost seemed, I'm sure there were breaks, but it seemed like there weren't any breaks. Right. And it also seemed that it almost used that soundtrack like a crutch sometimes. Like, right. oh, you're supposed to be really feeling like how crazy this is right now. And yeah. rather, rather than go all the way we could to show it, Right. Here's just some crazy music. Right. Right. Over, right, right. over top of him running down the stairs. But in 1955, or maybe this like it, that this thing that kind of became sort of a hackneyed convention was groundbreaking at the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just wish they a little more temperance with the musical soundtrack. Got yeah. it. And so you did or did not like Birdman. Oh, Birdman. Yeah. Well, I liked it. Yeah. And so you weren't bothered by the bombastic jazz soundtrack. I felt that it was appropriate okay. mm-hmm. in the places that it were where, in which it was used. They right. used it very spe- in very specific right. spots in Birdman. Got it. This one was kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, he was supposed to be a drummer and, a, and also niggling. an amazing card dealer. Like he he wasn't a cheating. We talked about this on some other. Did I? We watched this for uh, addiction. I think I watched this for really. And his thing is that he's supposed to be a great card dealer. Mm-hmm. Like so, he's the dealer for poker games. Yeah. And for some reason, they want him there because. They don't explain. Right. Like, but unless you're cheating, being a good card dealer in poker means nothing. It yeah. means nothing. There's tons yeah. of them. You're, you're just like dealing cards. Yeah. It's, it made no sense to me that they were like, no, we need you to be the dealer. So how good was the heroin part of it though? Like, was that, uh, you know, now that you, now we've done the whole episode, do you feel like it was kind of accurate? They or had, they had like a scene where he was going cold Turkey and he was locked in an apartment. All right. Okay. Um, you know, where he goes through the whole grueling, grueling withdrawal. And it was pretty good, but it yeah. was no like Ray Milland in the Lost Weekend. Right. It didn't, right, right. it didn't hold up compared mm-hmm. to Got it. Got it. Um, but it did have Arnold Stang, who was the voice of Top Cat. All of our listeners will know what that is. <laughs> uh, I, I don't even know I don't, what that yeah. is. Hanna-Barbera cartoon Whoosh. Top Cat. Got it. And Arnold Stang was like, kind of like, hey, what you doing there? Uh, like this little mascot kind of guy <laughs> who like followed him around. And he was like a small time crook that stole clothes from him and stuff like that. What about you, Joe? What's your favorite, uh, you know, heroin related It's got to be Train Spotting for sure. 1996. Yeah, yeah. we've referenced it we've many, many times. Because you and I both love this film. Yeah. I got some Train Spotting trivia. All right. Uh, the football team pictured in the opening credits is the Carlton Athletic Club, who are actually drug addiction counselors and were the primary consultants for the film. Oh, nice. Uh, Johnny Lee Miller's character, Sick Boy, is obsessed with James Bond trivia, while Johnny Lee Miller, the actor, is the grandson of Bernard Lee, who played M in the Bond series until 1979. Nice. Hmm? 
He's got a direct connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny Boyle credits the Spike Jones directed music video Sabotage by the Beastie Boys as a major influence for the opening sequence of the film, where yeah. they're running from, they shoplifted from that uh, department uh, store and are mm-hmm. running down the street. Okay. I get that. He should have just like played Sabotage over top of that instead of uh, Lust for Life. <clears throat> One of my favorite movies that uh, depicts heroin use extensively, of course, previously mentioned Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. Yes. Come on, year 2000. You're, so you're ho-hum on this? I'm, yeah, I used to hate it. I watched it a second time, I think, again for the addiction episode yeah. and liked it more, but I still... Oh, drugs are bad? Shocking. How do you feel about it? I feel fine. Over-dramatized? Overhead? Uh, whatever. I got some trivia. I, I, li- I really liked the old lady. The old oh, lady. Uh, yeah, there's tons of great Alan stuff. Alan Burstyn. Yeah. yeah. She, oh, she won the Oscar for that, I think. Record for Dream Trivia. Director Darren Aronofsky asked Jared Leto and Marlon Wayans to avoid sex and sugar for a period of 30 days before shooting in order to better understand overwhelming cravings. Did they do it? Yes, evidently. Or at least they told they told them yeah. they did. Uh, the word heroin is never actually said by any of the characters in the film. Right. Oh. It's never used. Mm-hmm. Uh, the role of Harry Goldfarb was originally intended for Giovanni Ribisi. But he was Darren. addicted to heroin at the time, so it was not <laughs> yeah, available. He was, just, he was method. He went full method in the audition. Uh, no, Aronofsky wanted Rabisi because he resembled the actual look of Harry Goldfarb, who had curly blonde hair in Hubert Selby Jr.'s 1978 novel. Hmm. Uh, Dave Chappelle was originally offered the role of Tyrone, but turned it down. And Nev Campbell was the first choice for the role of Marion, but declined when she found out it required nudity. Not mm-hmm. just nudity. Mm-hmm. That scene's kind of intense, yeah. yeah. Probably my favorite heroin-related film that no, well, not nobody, but very few people will have either seen or heard of, The Barbarian Invasions. I have heard of it. Les Invasions Baba. It's on my list to watch. It is a fantastic film. It's what I've heard. It's a sequel. It's one of those ones that it was a sequel that came, that was released like 20 or 25 years after the original. And it's the main character from, it's the... Main character from The Decline of the American Empire by uh, director Denis Arcand, who, uh, French-Canadian director, where it's kind of like a French-Canadian big chill sort of thing, you know? Okay. And uh, they all sort of just talk philosophically about the state of the nation and all the rest of right. that stuff. And this one, he's the main, same main character is diagnosed with terminal cancer, so he decides, well, I'm going to start doing heroin. Sure. Because why the hell not? And uh, his like great niece this young girl who is an addict herself he agrees to pay for her heroin if she brings him heroin oh. in the hospital and so there's kind of this this father daughter relationship that kind of burdens up and there's all this heroin use and uh it uh, it is the first sequel to ever win the best foreign language film award at the oscars oh mm-hmm. fancy that I watch Basketball Diaries. I'd never watched it before because first thing I hear is basketball and I'm like, ah, I'm not interested. Oh, no, no, like no, no. It's about some basketball playing kids who get addicted to heroin. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm totally not interested. Yeah. Uh, but I watched it for research for this episode and it was very good. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, shocking. Drugs are bad for you when you're a kid who has a promising future. I'm so surprised. But at the same time, I kind of wish every single high school jock who thinks about doing drugs would watch this movie first i really like i think it effectively will work that way to keep people from doing it they should show it in high school i think i think it was the first movie i ever saw mark Wahlberg in and i thought Mm -hmm. to myself holy shit marky mark can act 
Yeah, he's he was not pretty just good. all about good vibrations and Calvin Klein. He ads. was good because I fucking hated his character. Like, <laughs> and that is what I was supposed to do. I yeah. think he was the violent, uh, entitled piece of shit jock who just beat the crap out of people who did anything he didn't like. Yeah, yeah, I hated that guy. Which is exactly what he, how he's supposed to be played. Good job. Yeah, yeah. no, no, he did a great job, and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as well mm-hmm. was pretty fantastic in it. I still like the scene where he does heroin for the first time, and just uh, it. He shoots it and then it cuts away like instantly to him running through a field of poppies. Yep. And then it like cuts back to him and he's in this like crack house and it's like three days later. He's like, what the hell just happened to me? Uh, So I thought that was a uh, particularly visual way of communicating what it might feel like for the first time you ever do heroin. And uh, Little Miss Sunshine is also an excellent movie that has a pretty good little heroin subplot. The Grandfather. Yeah, you don't really uh, on see any like actual. Like, no, you uh, don't. You know, it's just sort of kind of mentioned casually. Well, he's got that one scene where they're like, "Come on, Dad, you can't do hair," and he's, "What? I'm gonna die soon. I want to have some fun before I go." And yeah. I kind of, I kind of heard that and went, "Huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. All right." Right, but they never actually show him like totally high and wasted. No, on it's heroin, true. Yeah, right? they don't like, really show the dark side of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's almost it's positive. Happy. They I guess they really reserve judgment on it. Yeah, they do. Until the it, end of that. It's, it's kind of like, look, he's going to die soon. Let him have some fun. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see an argument against that. Uh, yeah. So I watched Christian F. Oh. We Children from Banhof Zoo. All right. It sounded like it could be good. So this is, this is like all the other drug movies we've been talking about. Yeah. Where it really just shows, goes through all of the phases. Right. I'm not doing heroin. I'm doing a little bit of heroin. Right. I'm doing all the heroin. Yeah. My life is fucked up. I'm blowing people in a car. Yeah. Um, so it's I'm kind stealing of, from my mom. Yeah, it's like that public service announcement about that guy and his like five yeah. things I learned about heroin. Yeah. Now I'm going through withdrawal. Yeah. Now I'm clean. Now I'm going back on heroin again. Right. Cetera, the cycle, cetera, rinse right. and repeat. Right. Which many, many, many addicts uh, go through in the course of their lives. The difference here mainly being this is a German film from 1981. Okay. All right. So this portrays the drug scene in West Berlin in the 1970s. And right. It's based on the nonfiction book of the same name written following tape recordings of this teenage girl, Christiane uh, Felscherinau. Okay. Um, that kind of chronicles her life from 1975 to 1978 mm-hmm. um, when she was between the ages of 12 and 15. Oh. Oh, wow. Wow. So, and the actors portraying these characters are 14 years old okay wow yeah uncomfortable is it make you feel uncomfortable yes it does oh wow oh man oh wow that is that's very harrowing i had no idea but i guess the filmmaker wanted that kind of cinema verite they wanted to like portray it as it would have been right yes definitely mm-hmm. um the it depicted in very realistic detail all the proceedings of heroin addict addiction the hustling the scoring the shooting up the effects of the drug the mm-hmm. the, the shoot up scars and everything mm-hmm. uh christian and her cohorts are seen losing consciousness in decrepit laboratory cubicles amidst urine vomit and blood injecting and close-ups clearing and refilling syringes directly from the toilet bowl vomiting all over themselves and falling asleep right on top of it right um some of their friends you know die right yeah um Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the depiction of addicts at the time was more like easy rider right, right? right so right. all so and this is all based on real yeah it's based on, an, on an, an autobiographical yeah. story so it written. was pretty shocking 
Um, the fact that the characters prostitute themselves to obtain drugs, both hetero and homosexuality at such a young age, revolted audiences. Um, the film is played mainly by first-time actors, the majority of whom were still in school at the time and have not pursued acting careers since. <laughs> well, yeah, that was no fun. It might. Uh, well, I mean, especially when you're 14 and then you, the movie comes out and all your like school friends go to see it and they see like, you like what? prostituting and yeah. puking all over yourself yeah. and passing out and shooting up drugs. And at that age, probably a little more difficult to like. Then if you were in your college years or whatever to differentiate between your on-screen persona and your real-life persona. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that tainting people's, uh, you know, thought processes about going after a career in the performing arts. Most shoot-up nudity and sex scenes involving such underage underage actors in such graphic detail would not be permitted by today's legal standards, but at the time, it only required a written letter of consent from the parents to proceed with filming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to get a body double or whatever, right? Yeah. In order to do anything like that. Most of the extras at the railway station and at the sound club were, in fact, actual junkies, prostitutes, and lowlifes uh-huh. rounded up by producers just for these crowded scenes. Uh, nice. Features David Bowie as both himself and the soundtrack composer, which oh, gave the okay. movie a, a bit of a commercial boost. All right. Okay. Right, right. Uh, my main critiques with this film was that it was too long and it was too predictable. Uh, but how, how long was it? It was like over two hours. Okay. So I think if I was in 1981... When this was released, yeah. mm-hmm. I would have probably have a different opinion right? about right. it being too predictable because we right. have, I haven't, you know, me, I've seen all these other movies we've talked about. Right. That are so I know what influenced happens. Directly. I've seen The Basketball Diaries. I've seen, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Requiem for a Dream. That, none of these probably would exist without Christian yeah. F., yeah. which was based on a person's actual life. So definitely a good movie. Definitely worth seeing. Right. But uh, yeah, it's kind of intense and it seemed a bit long. Uh, one interesting thing about Basketball Diaries is the friend of Leonardo DiCaprio's character is played by Michael Imperioli, right? who also plays Christopher Moltisanti in the Sopranos TV series, yep. who ends up having a pretty big heroin problem in that. His character ends up having a big heroin problem in that series. Yeah, well, that, uh, I mean, he, yeah, that, that's uh, like a major storyline. In fact, in the final season of The Sopranos, mm-hmm. it's one of the defining storylines of the entire plot. Yeah, right? yeah. Because, of course... It's uh, been a while since I've watched it, though. Holy cow. Yeah, well, uh, he gets back on heroin, and so, spoiler alert, everyone, Tony Soprano has him killed, kills him with his own bare hands to put him out of his misery. So I am a big fan of that Soprano TV series, and uh, yeah, that storyline, I mean, there are several times where he just hole up in his apartment and just do heroin with his girlfriend and his buddies, and yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, a constant struggle. I thought it was pronounced Sopranos. Have I been saying it wrong all this time? I think so. Yeah, they're Greek, not Italian. Oh, the Sopranos. Yeah, perfect. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling. An ominous feeling. A feeling you know that will be back when the week is new and we'll have more gross facts for you and you'll have things you want to hear about we will too
Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while listening to an audio tape of the Book of Mormon read by Jar Jar Binks. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter, at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. I'm Eric Fell. Thanks for listening. Go out on that. We'll just cut it so I seem witty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>